Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to our podcast. This episode is brought to you by our dear friends and colleagues over at Risinger Homes. They're an Austin-based, full-service luxury home builder and remodeler, and we've worked with them on many occasions. And Risinger Homes really is a different kind of firm. First, they're focused on building science, which we think is incredibly important. And I encourage you to check out the YouTube channel of their owner, Matt Reisinger. It's at youtube.com backslash user backslash Matt Reisinger. Be sure to subscribe. And secondly, we've seen time and time again how much architects really appreciate the seamless experience of working with a builder who has an in-house architect slash builder. Reisinger Homes has exactly that person. His name's Eric Rouser. So architects, call Risinger Homes early in the design phase of your projects so we can team up with you and your client to build a great home. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, your host, and today I have two guests. The first that I'm going to introduce is Matthew Tanteri. Matthew is on a mission to bring natural light, view, and comfort into buildings. Through the establishment of a collaborative alliance with HLB Lighting, Matthew provides thought leadership with their Daylighting and Sustainability Design Studio. He also manages the daylighting and electric lighting of a number of large commercial and institutional projects. Uh, meanwhile, Tantarian Associates, his globally renowned namesake firm, continues producing creative and technologically innovative light projects that include LED media facades, towers, luminous tensile structures, and light art. And I would also add, Matthew, that I think you had something to do with some rock and roll show lighting way back in the day. Right. My past history is that um, I used to provide laser displays for uh, lots of bands. In Are the, you allowed to um, say any of the ones? Oh, yeah. Um, I toured with Def Leppard. <laughs> All right. I did, uh, did a show with Kiss. All right. Michael Jackson. Oh, really? Earth, Wind, and Fire. All right. I mean, I, I, if I start thinking, I will keep going. That's a lot. <laughs> And he's young and spry in spite of that background. Uh, so Matthew's also a fellow with uh, IES, which is the Illumination Engineering Society. Hint, that's a big deal. Uh, plus many other credentials, which would take too long to go through. So now I'll introduce Keith. Sorry, Keith, you're going to seem small in, re in relation. Hi, everybody. So Keith Simon's been with us before. You guys might remember him. He's a senior architect and building enclosure consultant at Building Exterior Solutions here in Austin. And BES has recently uh, become a division of Terracon, so congratulations for joining Terracon, Keith. Keith and Matthew, actually, are also both adjunct faculty at the UT School of Architecture. And uh, I welcome you both, and let's get started. I have a couple of things to say. So just for uh, bookkeeping, you guys listening, this is one of the podcast episodes that is on our Indoor Environmental Quality, our IEQ series. This one is uh, about light, so this could be considered the ILQ series for episode. And um, <clears throat> yeah, today we're all going to be having a discussion about light and lighting and uh, the quality and quantity of light in a space, its composition and interaction with us and our surroundings is probably one of our dominant experiences of the world. Um, if you're listening and not driving, go ahead and close your eyes for a minute and see how everything shifts. Um, you know, just thinking generally, the current trend of ever-increasing window-to-floor area ratios, it's absolutely related to occupant experiences of light and view and connection with nature, and like uh, Matthew's mission to bring natural light and view into buildings. And then there's, you know, recently LED lighting and uh, screens are sort of changing the way we interact with light. Like, think about how much of our time is spent with our eyeballs on screens and indoor with electric lighting and how that impacts um, physiology and psychology. So with that, I'm going to turn it over. And I guess, Keith, would you like to start with the... Sure. And uh, one thing I'd like to add is that um, not only are Matthew and I both on the um, adjunct faculty at the School of Architecture, but for the past two years, 
we've actually co-taught a class together called Environmental Controls. It's a uh, large undergraduate class um, that covers electric lighting, daylighting, acoustics, and introductory electrical systems. So that's been a pleasure. And um, something else I'd like to also add to uh, Matthew's resume is that <laughs> that I want to point out for people that um, th he's not just an electric lighting designer and consultant, but also a daylighting designer and consultant. And that combination of being able to consult on both electric lighting and daylighting is very unusual and incredibly valuable. So it's it's been a pleasure to uh, get to know him and teach with him over the past two years. Thanks, Keith. I think that daylighting focus will come out as we talk because I tend to go there as we yeah. talk about the subject of light. So I was thinking we, we could um, start our conversation by um, paraphrasing David Foster Wallace, where he tells this um, story about two fish who are swimming along, two sort of young punk-like kid fish, and they're swimming along, <laughs> and then an older fish is swimming the other direction, and the older fish says to the younger fish, uh, so um, how's the water today? And the, the young fish kind of look at each other strangely and just swim on, and then when they're out of earshot of the older fish, the two young fish look to each other and they say, what the heck is water? <laughs> and so I, I love this story and I, I think about it a lot. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's a, an analogy that we could think of when we're thinking about how light and architecture interact that, um, in one sense, light and architecture cannot exist separately. They are one and the same and we can't experience without light yet at the same time, it's frequently forgotten or, um, put down on the priority list. And, mm -hmm. and I guess what, um, I'd like to open up the conversation with you is um, how do you perceive the, the world of lighting design in our building industry? In other words, um, it's divided between professions, architects, engineers, designers, and it's divided into metrics. And, and how sometimes do you feel as though um, the sort of importance of this subject is um, not always given the, the understanding or importance that it, that it deserves? Okay, so I'll approach that, the questions you asked from both ends. For the, le for the last question, I don't feel that it gets the importance that it deserves. However, I am finally starting to achieve one of my goals, which is to work with architects at the very beginning of the design process to shape the building, to uh, bring in natural light as the uh, first thing, and then design electric light around it, because that's, that's the proper way to do it. So uh, that was a goal of mine for uh, two decades, a decade and a half at least. And finally, I'm there with um, the right clients and getting uh, measurable results, like simulation agreeing with built construction. So it's just to go back now to the beginning, have the way you started with the, the, um, the fish story. So I, the, I would take the literal translation of that that the water is light and uh, the bowl is architecture, right? Because then you go through your day, you walk around. Well, if you're in nature, it's very hard to walk around without noticing light. Just because if it's, it's variegated, it presents itself in layers. There's, uh, there's spectacle in every um, <clears throat> glance, in every vista you set up. Whether it's uh, and that's nature. That is our that is our connecting experience. However, when you're in the interior of a building, which unfortunately we spend most of our day in interiors of buildings, you don't have the same spectacle of light that you have in nature. So it does become like the fishbowl in that there is less asymmetry or spectacle or um, let's call it a random organization that keeps your uh, senses stimulated. So maybe we have more, uh... all right, so, so that, that is sort of the hard part, is creating an interior that keeps your senses stimulated, that there is a relationship to nature, yet you perform your task and you stay on this edge of stimulation and focus on what you're doing. I think that's the hard edge to ride. That's what I get to with quality. We have to be in that zone of comfort, stimulation, you know, and be able to go in and out of it. But let's also look at that fish story that 
Um, <clears throat> architecture is the water where you you uh, you don't even notice architecture anymore because if uh, it's so regular, if lighting is not distinguishing it, then there's no there's no uh, nothing to to hone in on, like say a wall. If there's a wall that is of a material that a lot of money has been spent on that material, if there isn't light on it, that wall doesn't come into prominence. It doesn't pull your attention. So it becomes like water, the water in the fish story that there's no, oh, did you see the wall? Well, what wall? I mean, I was walking around, I was thinking about this, mm -hmm. what I gotta do in the next 15 minutes. Nothing brought you to that wall. You know, the architect may have designed the building as a funnel where he funneled you right to the wall, but you were looking at your phone, man, because you got work to do. So that wall never happened for you. So, you know, I like the fish story, that, you know, coming into it. I'll also just add, like, the frog story, which is, you know, you've heard you put the frog in the water and you heat up the water. The frog never notices and just boils to death. Well, that doesn't happen with people. You put them in a... a a pot of water and you start to raise the temperature. <clears throat> now let's call that the pot like a building and you're letting sunlight into the building and you're saying, okay, you're gonna work in this environment with sunlight coming into the building, lots of glass. Actual fishbowl. <laughs> and you're gonna be productive and uh, give us the most return on our uh, cost per square foot. It doesn't happen. Buildings don't respond the way the body does. They don't automatically blink their eyes and open them when the sun's not there. <clears throat> they don't adjust climate the way the body does, right? You, they don't get up and move, turn around, or go some, to another location. So um, we're different creatures, right? We, ha we have to think in a different way. We have to design buildings that um, are able to respond and if we have to make decisions about them. So Getting back to your middle question, not everyone does that, right? You need someone who's thinking on several levels of uh, light and heat and architecture. And it's not something that, um, say, because I have, my clients are architects and engineers, I'm, I'm not putting any profession down because it's all a collaboration, but you need someone focused on that uh, role. So that's my role as a daylighting, lighting consultant is <clears throat> I look at light, I look at daylight and electrical light together and architecture, and that's I stay uh, focused on that through the design process mm -hmm. because I understand how important they are to the qualitative experience of space and, and uh, <clears throat> worker productivity, which is a concern of the, the owner. Yeah. So this, this, you brought up this idea of um, the, the wall kind of fading. You don't see the wall. And, and I, I think it, it's important to note it's not just because it might you know, if the lights are off and it's dark, you don't see it, but that there's a homogeneity to it, that it's not illuminated, you don't notice it. And um, th this goes into um, sort of the drive between variance versus homogeneity, that in life, we do prefer some variance, that um, it's soothing to the eye when there's some natural light or um, controlled natural light that um, we see the changes in the cloud cover overhead or the illumination may increase a little or decrease, that that's um, pleasant for us as human beings and that sometimes there's a drive within architecture for homogeneity. In other words, um, dropped ceilings, all acoustic tile ceilings, all beige surfaces, all absorptive material, all gray carpeting with the idea of having the sound and the light completely homogenous, completely even. And that unfortunately, that drive for controlled environment sucks the life out of a building. Hmm. And it makes it absolutely a terrible place to live or to work or to inhabit. And yet the other extreme is no good either, right? Like the other extreme is we do walls of glass. And we have walls of glass maybe because we're in love with the, um, the floor to ceiling glass and the, um, the uh, sort of architectural element of that or um, whatever it is, but it also brings in too much light and too much glare and too much heat gain. And so these extremes of too much or too little are just no good in that daylighting is really, it's this, it's, that's a hard part, right? It's, it's getting that balance of not too much and not too little, um, but getting it just right somewhere in between. Right. So, let, let, so some, some of the things we've taught in our class, let, let's go more into what you just 
brought up, which is uh, there's layers of light in any visual scene, just like in musical composition. There's layers of um, instruments and tonality. Uh, let me stick to light. So in light, when you deconstruct a scene into layers, there could be, um, let's call, uh, well, we can use, I mean, Richard Kelly, the great light designer who worked with Louis Kahn. Uh, he had a great philosophy of light that there's uh, three components. There's um, ambient light, there's points of light, and focal glow. So, I mean, he had specific words. There was um, play of brilliance was the sparkle with little highlights. Uh, focal glow was like the, a pool of light that brought your attention, like standing around a, a campfire. Mm -hmm. And ambient light was like, say, a uh, indirect lighting, an overcast sky. So in your, in your uh, examples you brought up, if everything was, if we felt that, if we illuminated architecture so it was an overcast sky inside, eventually we'd, we'd get very bored with that, that diffuse lighting, shadowless light, mm -hmm. right? And then if we put large glass walls, if we lived in glass boxes, we would have, I'd say, points of light. We'd have the sun coming in, sharp shadows, there'd be no relief for us to, to look away from. And then that focal glow would happen when there's sun patches reflecting on the floor and we could like go near them and they're actually nice, right? They're, they're nice. If, as long as you don't, are not in the patch, you can control your location to them. They're like, they're actually light sources. They're yeah. our lamps. But um, so viewing that condition in those layers of light, what we want to have is uh, we, we want to create these like daylighted spaces that have these uh, varying mixes of these layers of light that stay in controllable situations that keep us comfortable, that we stay comfortable thermally and visually. When you started off, you were talking about, I know Keith, you want to talk about the roles of different people, but we, we can talk about architects, engineers, and designers, like what the roles are for them with um, indoor environmental quality. What, what are the metrics? Yeah, maybe now's a good time to um give maybe an overview of what are the most common metrics that are used to design light for spaces and then also maybe some color commentary on on which of those metrics if they're doing a good job or not doing a good job on what what metrics may be coming down the pipeline okay so um, as you said earlier I'm a fellow of the illuminating engineering society which publishes all the standards for the profession that uh, make up the best practices of light and design and architecture. <clears throat> now it's called illuminating instead of illuminating. And there's a big, here's one of the big distinctions is that illumination is light incident upon a surface. So recommended illumination, so um, what's the, the standards that are published are recommended illumination levels, the amount of light that should hit a surface for us to perform a task. Mm. Now that doesn't say too much about what we see because it's energy before it interacts with the surface. The surface has a reflectivity, a finish, a color, and it's that interaction is what we actually perceive. And most of those illumination recommendations are on a horizontal surface. And again, that doesn't really equate to what we see because we mostly see vertical surfaces, right? Mm -hmm. You walk in a room, it's not the floor that hits you first. It's like the walls, it's the windows, it's, and it's luminance. It's not illuminance. So the typical metrics... So what's luminance? Okay, luminance is light leaving a surface. It's the interaction of illuminance and if it's an opaque surface, reflectance. And then those two multiplied by each other produce luminance. And depending on the surface, it could the luminance can change over the angle that you view the surface. If it's a perfectly diffuse surface, you got this perfect luminance as you go around, if, as you look at different angles at the surface. But if there's any um, roughness, no, if there's any specularity or spread to the surface, it will vary by angle based on the incident angle. So the overcast sky, that was a diffuse light. Well... You said that that would bore people. Okay, so there's two types of luminance. There's reflections of light incident on an opaque surface, but there's also then luminance through a um, like a, um, 
a translucent. Well, for example, those curtains there in your living room has a nice soft uh, glow coming out of them. And what that is, is the exterior light, the sun or the reflected light from outside is filtering through that. So what we see is the transmitted light through that surface. And uh, for those listening, like a curtain or a shoji screen. So what we actually see is the luminance and it can be light that's filtering through, transmitted through a material or a surface or it can be the light that's reflected. So when we look at this table here, we're not seeing the light that's falling on the table, which is illuminance. We're seeing the light that's being reflected off of it. Now let's throw another thing in there, which is we don't all see that light. We see what we um, finally get interpreted as the image is the light that reaches our retina, which is very different for all of us. Because we're in different locations and our eyes are different. Our eyes are different. Our age is a big factor, right? You need for uh, a 20 year old compared to a 40, 50 year old needs like that 50 year old needs about four or five times the amount of light to see the same as the 20 year old. Wow. Yeah. So, so imagine that like, like being in a room with a 20 year old uh, and a 50 year old, well, and a one year old, how they all see things differently just based on the amount of light reaching the retina. Yeah. Then we all have colors. Colors. Uh, you know, it, um, life is beautiful, but for the eye, it, the eye ages. And as the eye ages, that beautiful clear fluid in it gets a little more coagulated and yellowish and starts to uh, tint the color of light, absorbs wavelengths. So that also impacts the colors we see as we get older. Um, and uh, I didn't know. so our sensitivities to color changes. So, so my, not to get down that road too far, the point is that uh, the person it's themselves as a camera, it's it's the light that registers on the retina, which could be different for all of us as well. So just let's go back to the question, which um, <laughs> the basic metric is illuminance on a horizontal surface for light. All right, and uh, then and that's really for things where say there's a lawsuit. Oh, I slipped and fell on your stairs, and you're and now the uh, the person is suing the owner, and they're like, okay, well, what was the light level on the stairs? So you would look at what's the best practice and see if you have those illumination levels, and the, and maybe the contrast of the, the steps, and so that you know if light played a part in the person slipping, but it, based on um, illuminance. All right, so then. Uh, Energy codes don't look at illumination. They look at power density, the amount of power in an area, either it's a foot or a meter squared. And that the reason why is because energy codes are driven by energy conservation. So now we're not looking at anything qualitative. We're looking at something quantitative. There's a corollary between illumination and energy and power. I'm not saying energy yet because of the efficacy of the source, how, how efficient the source is at converting energy mm-hmm. into uh, luminous energy, which is efficacy, lumens per watt. Right. But, um, so that will vary by source. But the basic metrics are energy codes look for power in, in uh, watts per meter squared or foot squared. Lighting looks for illuminance in uh, foot candles or lux. And uh, then there's net, then there's another order of metrics after that, which is more addressing qualitative things. Luminance, which we started to talk about. And then for the uh, power, there's energy, looking at power over time, which would start to be energy. Right. Because, and that's where controls come, comes in. Like you could have a lot of potential, you could have a whole building go on and be a, a great amount of energy, but really with controls, there's never a time everything comes on full. There's... It comes on slowly. You can have a lot of variety, you know. So, so thinking of those, you know, those are another layer of metrics to fully describe the en- the energy consumption and uh, qualitative aspects. So, I also want to um, add in there the element of time, which is that um, our eyes are always adjusting to the scene and the 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 contrast in the scene and the light levels in the scene. And so everybody has the experience of you go into a dark movie theater and at first you can barely see a thing, but then you give it a minute and you can see pretty well. Or the opposite, you're in that dark theater and you go outside and it, it's almost painful, but then you give your eyes time to adjust to the scene and it can handle a certain range. And so I feel like 
maybe it's because of our rushed society. Sometimes we don't give our eyes that time. And as an example, hmm. when I give presentations in, say, architecture firms or, or, or uh, industry locations, uh, I want to turn the lights down because once everyone's had a chance to adjust with their eyes, they can see the, the presentation better. Yet, at first, people don't want to give it that chance. And actually, have a, uh, I've had a number of presentations where everyone who comes in flips the lights back on, and then I have to turn them back down, and then they flip them on. So um, mm -hmm. how do you account for the element of time and adjustment? Does that come into play when you, when you do lighting design? Yeah, because you can't separate space and time. We're, we're slaves to it. That's a good thing. You're talking relativistic physics now? No, Let's I'm going to stay there. away from that. <laughs> because we can have a separate conversation yeah. about that. I'm just yeah. going to talk about buildings. Um, there's a very formal, the partie of the building. There's a concept, but there's a, a spatial progression. There's um, an exterior, there's a um, vestibule, there's a corridor, and then it, there's a room, right? So it takes time to go from the exterior to the room. Now, I think a museum is probably a good, a good example of that, yeah. or a theater, where you come, you know, it's bright outside, and now you're going to go see this beautiful watercolor that has, um, let's see, if it's a sunny day outside and it's 10,000 foot candles, you're going to come in eventually and see a beautiful watercolor lit with five foot candles. Now, what percentage is that? I won't calculate it. It's, 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 I mean, it's less small. than, much less than a percent. Point oh oh. However, our eyes um, adapt. They adapt over 14 orders of magnitude. Wow. What kind of, I mean, that is an amazing visual system. Mm -hmm. So the way we make that happen is the time it takes to go from outside to this room, it, you, as an architect, you would design the space to make sure there's enough time for your, um, to go from daytime vision, photopic, to some type of close to nighttime vision. It takes a longer time to get into Skotaka, but mesopic, which is in the middle, so that by the time you're in that room, you're seeing the, the five-foot candles looks like it, like 10,000 did outside. Not quite, but it, you would get the same stimulus of the contrast ratios in there, even though they're so different. And, so, um, and that's something really that you know we just... Another thing, when, when you call the light is water, you don't notice it. You don't notice your eyes doing this incredible adaptations mm -hmm. that it does from you know, being outside and full movement. terms again? Would you mind just to... The, you, it sounded like it was a human physiology. Photopic? Photopic is uh -huh. um, daytime vision. Okay. That's when the peak sensitivity of your eye is around yellow, a yellowish-greenish wavelength. Okay. I'm not going to give numerical wavelengths because they won't mean much. So we're sensitive to yellow-green. Mm -hmm. That's the center of the sun, really, and no reflections off Well, of our earth. eyes evolved on the Earth. I'm sure there's a reason why yellow-green peaks. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, when I'm hungry, I'm looking for green, right? Yeah. You know, so our eye evolved to see this peak wavelength for a reason, which I think has to do with evolution, survival. And then at night, it goes to um, bluish. It shifts towards sh uh, shorter wavelengths, blue, bluish. So you, you so if you were... Um, there's a name for that? Scotopic? Scotopic. And then there are states in the middle called mesopic. Okay. All and right. it takes time. Interesting. You know, yeah, so now those different ways of seeing the illuminance... Uh, metric is based on daytime vision. So what about what happens at nighttime vision? Right. Mm -hmm. So now there's a way to readjust daytime vision levels to nighttime vision levels. You can overlay this method onto the prescribed illumination levels and come up with some adjustment based on wavelength content. You know, so now it gets layered. Well, um... I do want to point out that this is, I believe, a really important part of sustainable design, that the ability to design for how we, how we as humans experience a space and how our human eyes adapt, like you said, you, you can design a space where you can safely and um, positively 
view a, a work of art at five foot candles. But if we rely on the energy code or the illuminance, the metric illuminance, the illuminance guidelines, they'll say we need 50 foot candles. And so that's where the, I believe the real sort of art and um, potential of the lighting designer comes in and understanding that experience. And so there's the element of time and the element of contrast. And so the contrast goes back to this idea of homogeneity versus variance. And, you know, if we, again, if we rely on these guidelines of say it's a classroom for students and we must have 30 foot candles or 50 foot candles throughout, then we're filling up this volume of light. And even if we use really high efficacy, energy efficient um, light sources, there's still a certain critical mass of energy required to fill up this volume. But if we can design where we we're okay without homogeneity, like for example, um, um, perhaps lower light levels around the corridors or between desks, or um, maybe the, the front board is at a higher level, but a lower level on the lights. If we can design for that contrast, that it's that is an, an element of a potential of sustainable design and energy efficiency that goes way beyond how many lumens per watt. Right. So, okay. So I got a lot of that stimulated a lot of different thoughts, but the and we've talked about this in our class as we've taught our class. So if you're a lighting designer, there's many strategies to creating a lighting design. So one of them could be instead of supplying a general illumination level with the fixtures that they all go to 30, you could have pools of lighting that are much higher in the space. And I'll give you an example, like in, in high-end retail, you highlight objects at a high light level. Now the reflected light from those objects give you this 30-foot candle base layer of illumination. So, so now you can get to this average level using pools of higher intensity. And you've got, and so instead of illuminating uniformly, you've illuminated maybe asymmetrically at high levels with high reflectance surfaces and hit your target anyway. And now it's an interest, a more interesting environment. It's just a lighting strategy. Mm -hmm. And there's others for that. There's other strategies to, to get at similar things. And at the other point you made about light over time, there actually is a whole body of metrics around that. And I'll just go back to the museum example. When you look at artwork in a museum, the metric is lux hours, so that it's a multi it, you multiply illumination level over time, and that gives you uh, a final metric that tells you that you can relate to the sensitivity of the artwork and understand how long it will take to um, be destroyed, because every artwork is being is is um, fleeting. It's just go, they all go at different rates. And lux is, the more lux it Lux times, it yes, over time. So, so. So lux is like a, a lighting power. Lux is the same as illuminance. It's like foot versus meters. It's what the rest of the world uses. Ah, okay. So in Europe, it's not the Illumination Engineering Society, it's the lux. No, it's, well, they have their own society, but. They use Lux, which is based on the metric system, and we use foot candles based on the British system. A rule of thumb nice. is it's about a factor of 10. So 10 foot candles is 100 Lux, approximately. Is that right? Or did I go the other way? No, that's right. All right. No, what, what's one. nice about the foot candle is a foot candle is if you took a candle <laughs> and lit a candle and you held uh, one square foot, one foot away from the candle, that's a foot candle. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, if you need to just get yeah, a reference point, yeah, exactly. you, know, you can light a candle. There's a physicality to the name. But for the, um, so making the analogy of how many lux hours do people need, that's interesting because our eyes do also, uh, our retinas deteriorate over time. And that's why we wear, you uh -huh. know, watch out for UV, high levels of light. And so we similarly, our retina also um, goes over time. I don't know if, if we all are aware of that, but you know, that's why, it, especially for like Austin here, you know, sunglasses, staying away from UV exposure. Well, that's a, I was really hoping you could talk about, since Matthew um, spent a good part of his career in New York City doing lighting design and daylighting design, and then moved to Austin, Texas. Could you talk about some of the, 
well, obviously we have a lot more daylight hours here, but um, designing for visual comfort, I assume is some very different strategies here in Austin versus New York. And if you could speak to some of those. I just remember when I first got here and, and I, I just could not make it from the car to a building without sunglasses and squinting. I didn't have a pair of sunglasses that were dark enough. Interesting. And it took me months to get used to it. And even for my kids, you know, I would see them just standing there in the parking lot, not knowing what to do because it was just so bright. So there, it, now, light levels are a little higher here, but it's really that more ground, less obstructions, uh, that brightness of, let's say, 10,000 foot candles on a 60% uh, ground, it's just, it, the luminance from that is equivalent to a cumulus cloud, you know, right next to the sun, you know, illuminated by the sun. So I, again, when, when we talk about this experience, I'm going to use nature, you know, that nature can, you know, what's the next thing What's the after the sun? What's the brightest thing? It's a cumulus cloud in the sky. I didn't know that. So I thought um, it would be the full moon. At night. No. no, this or snow. Well, the luminance of the moon tells you its reflectivity. It tells you that's how they figure out what was like what the material of the moon was by the luminance. Because really? starts to understand the reflectance. But um, so the different. What I noticed was the brightness. Of course, the. Uh, the amount, the insulation, like just sunlight hitting your flesh, how hot it is. And uh, maybe that's angle, that's angle related. And that was, just to reiterate, insulation, not insulation. Right, insulation, just uh, radiant energy hitting uh, energy radiated from the sun. So coming like incident radiation pre projected from the sun hitting your skin and you converting that, you're, you're, without seeing it, you're converting it to heat on your skin, like feeling it as heat. So that, that was the sensation I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, so th those physical things, but then, you know, my architecture design side, just, uh, I, it was unbelievable to me how poorly shaded this uh, area is, how I thought I was going, when I made the journey from New York to here, I thought I would see a very sophisticated use of shading devices, and I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. I've seen over-glazed buildings, and uh, I haven't seen, I've, I've seen overhangs, but nothing really thought through. Mm -hmm. you know, more as decorative features, or just uh, the um, borrowing of vernacular devices without uh, tweaking, optimization. So that, that constantly surprised me, especially on larger buildings or you know buildings where it makes a big difference monetarily and just for the quality inside. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can we can walk around downtown Austin or in the neighborhoods and look at um, shading devices, uh, fins on the south side, horizontal on the east side, and um, too far, too too shallow, too spread out. Um, just the wrong strategies used as aesthetic elements, but not performance elements. And then every once in a while, you, we see one that's done right, and it's like, hey, they got it. And uh, it's a little frustrating that it's not more ingrained in the vocabulary of the local architecture. I definitely agree with that. When we, if we go to um, talk about um, energy efficiency and sustainable design, there's, I think, a lot of layers to that within lighting design. But to start from the most basic building block of a light source or a light bulb um, and we look at energy efficiency we call it efficacy lumens per watt how much light per unit of power we get out of a light source what are some of the um, trends the technological trends um, and where do you think they're going okay so <clears throat> today when you say technology it has something to do with LEDs because LEDs took the lighting world by storm yeah. it started about a decade or two ago that LEDs started to get used in architectural lighting. But it was only two, just uh, two to three years ago did they get up to a level where they just took over. I mean, I, now it's rare that I have a project where there's something else other than LED on the project. And 
that other thing is usually fluorescent, a linear fluorescent, where uh, it, it has the same similar efficacy to LEDs, but the, the reason why it's still used is because it's lower cost. Like L, one of the prohibitive factors of LED usage in the beginning was with, they were very costly, but then the price just started to drop and drop. So, so that's how they took over being replaced for um, other sources. So, but there's still places where fluorescent is cheaper than LED and does a fine job when you need high illuminance levels, dimmable, in a, in a large space and uh, the form factor works like the LED form factor doesn't necessarily give you anything better but uh, so technology is I would say it's LED related it's it's around the miniaturization of LEDs the form factor of LED fixtures that because of its just unusual different form as a source the fixture around it has changed so much that it looks cool there's cool things that you can do with it you can have waveguides, like a, a glowing slab can be your illumination source. It's edge lit with LED and be very thin. Or you could have um, very small little uh, cuts in drywall that you can hide LEDs in the thickness of drywall and glow and have some usable illumination besides just seeing a cool knife, knife edge effect. Awesome. So that, and you could put it close to a person and supply task lighting, whereas with other sources, you wouldn't want to put that source that close to a person. It's just too much, too bright, too big. LEDs, I mean, you, you're starting to get them really close to your body, and so you're not, um, you know, you can get them local, like for local task lighting. So you can supply a person with that level of light they need, but you don't have to light the whole room necessarily. So like for that localized lighting, it works really well. They are still... Their, their efficacy is up there. I think they're leading the efficacy now of all the sources. Uh, fluorescent, it, it's not that the other sources are way behind them. They're right there. I mean, they're, they're, they got to the top of the uh, efficacy level of sources with, I'd say, um, compact fluorescent and metal halide. <clears throat> but I think they started to just exceed it. So, you know, we've really pushed LEDs to... to um, what about lighting quality as the... There's, I, I still find there's quite a range. Like if you go to Home Depot, for example, you can find LEDs with good lighting, warmer lighting quality, but a yeah. lot of them are still sort of like a nasty green yeah. or a nasty blue. Well, that's, that's a big problem because uh, LEDs produce light in a different way than an incandescent bulb. An incandescent bulb produces light by a glowing tungsten filament, incandescence like the sun, which gives you a very continuous spectrum. You have all colors. There's no nothing missing in between colors. Continuous. LED produces light by line spectrums. There's individual wavelengths that produce energy. And then it's the combination of those particular colors that give us the impression of white, whether it's cool white or warm white. If there's color, if there's colors that are deficient in the spectrum, we just don't see them. So if you have something that has a color and that color is not in the source. You don't see it. And uh, that's when things start to get, you know, when you start to feel cheated with light where you know, you, something looks great in one outside, suddenly you bring it and you look at it with some source, let's say it's an LED source that's missing the greenish one and it just doesn't look good or it looks strange. So um, <clears throat> there's new metrics that like, LEDs has forced the uh, study of new color metrics that had to come out to address the particular uh, idiosyncrasies of LEDs. So there's new ways of describing color because of LEDs. Yeah, there's been new... So, so as an example, for color rendering index, which is uh, a value from 0 to 100 that describes the uh, rendering ability of a source, 100 being daylight or an incandescent lamp, 100. It was based on you looking at eight swatches of color, pastel-like colors, <clears throat> and how those colors rendered compared to 100 would, would say would be a numerical rating that would convert to excellent, good, no, excellent, very good, good, acceptable, poor. And uh, well, LEDs, the, because of the particular way color was produced with different line spectrums, um, 
didn't it didn't equate those those eight particular colors didn't reflect the way uh, an LED would say render red. Mm -hmm. So they had to add more colors. <laughs> so they expanded the they expanded the color chart. So but there's so much more. There's four more new metrics just for um, color. I I got a quick tie in on those LEDs because you said it's a big problem with LEDs and one of the implicit big problems with energy efficient sources generally is this unfortunate public perception that says that people like us that might recommend LEDs to a project, that somehow we're saying to them, Keith, you're an energy hog, and to atone for that problem of being an energy hog, you have to suffer through you know, poor lighting, like complex fluorescence or something. Um, when in fact, it's just the opposite, that LEDs have the ability to deliver better outcomes for us, right? And I'm thinking of the one you talked to me briefly, been months now, about the ability of light to um, affect our circadian rhythms and help us, you know, actually relax or wake up. I don't want to get too far down right. this road. As we're, as we're nearing the end here, let's, I'll interject this quickly. This new metric, which has two names now. There's uh, one of the versions is called um, circadian stimulus. And there's another version of it that uh, is called melanopic light, related to uh, melatonin suppression. So, as you know, you're, uh, most of us have this sleep. We have a sleep-wake cycle. It's driven by uh, our exposure to light, specifically bluish light. Uh, bluish light and night and day. Bluish light does two things for us in the morning our exposure to high levels of bluish light entrains our circadian system. It says, okay, here's the point in the day, and it entrains it, this um, cyclical system. And then at night, the lesser, the loss of this blue light uh, allows melatonin in our system to be produced, which is makes us sleepy and puts us to sleep. Gets us, you know, we go to sleep. So that, um, so now that has been well documented and studied, and these metrics of um, looking at it two ways. One is the the wavelengths of light, their abilities to suppress the production of melatonin. That's one metric that's been out there now. That's like coffee keeps you awake. Well, it's it's the the combination of the, looking at the spectrum of light. How well is it at suppressing your melatonin? And then oh, there's another yeah. way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Based on research and the wavelengths that produce melatonin suppression, what is the cumulative effect of the wavelengths of this particular source for um, stimulating the circadian response? Like what, what finally gets to the eye, the back of the eye? So, so there, there's there two metrics looking at cir uh, circadian response. Yeah. But now there's one that has come out from the Lighting Research Center that seems to be a little stronger and is going to be adopted by um, reach codes that look at health. And, that's, and the IES has recognized now that we have become responsible for the physiology, for this physiological response. It's not just illumination. It's um, the wellness of a person because if we're in the, if if our role is to supply lighting, it's not just so you can work; it's so you can be healthy too. Like once you know there's a health effect, now you're responsible for it. So now there's new metrics coming. Whereas besides looking at illumination, luminance, energy, you know, power and energy, we're going to look at health, and that's going to be a metric that's you know we're going to have to put on the table with the other metrics and start to make decisions. So I'm I'm coming around to the end of this, which is. <clears throat> you can't do this alone. Yeah. So the, you the, need an expert. You need someone with experience to do it. You can't, if you want an owner, if you want to give value to the owner, you know, you don't throw LED fixtures in there and say, oh, because we're saving energy. Anything can go wrong. You need to look at these multiple metrics together. And it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult. You need a consultant. So the, the discussion about circadian rhythms, I think, is actually really important because... I think intuitively, we all know that daylighting and natural light, access to natural light through windows or, or whatnot, is important to our health. That there have been studies 
the the most important ones by the Heshang Mahoney group correlating higher test scores with students on well daylit schools or um, better worker productivity, um, better retail sales. That we intuitively we know that good daylighting is healthy for us, but it's largely been very difficult to prove why, <laughs> to figure out scientifically exactly why it is. And there's a, a, a common myth that it's um, daylight is healthy because in our indoor environments because of the um, vitamin D production. And while it's true that outside um, the UVB part of the daylight spectrum stimulates um, the vitamin D production within our bodies, most glazing systems, 99.9% .9 of the windows and glazing systems in our environments filter out the UVP, UVB part of the spectrum. So if you're inside all day, even in a fully glazed curtain wall building, you're not, it's not going to stimulate vitamin D. So there's something else. And a lot of the studies going on, a lot of the research going on focuses in on um, correlating us to our circadian rhythms that by having a view outside, by seeing the shadows on the interior to see that it's getting darker later in the day, that a cloud went over ahead and those changes are somehow linking us. Uh, to the world, the greater world outside and are soothing and more healthy for us. And so it's getting into the, um, how our interior light fixtures like LEDs do that as well. The, the joke with LEDs used to be that they may or may not be more energy efficient, but they're definitely more expensive. But now that's not always true, right? That, and, and we're not sure about the lighting quality. There are some that have great lighting quality and some that are not. There are some that are Usually they're more energy efficient. Frequently they're more expensive. There's other factors involved too. They have phenomenal lamp life, right? So for example, institutions like the University of Texas likes LEDs for the fact that they only have to go service them once every 10 plus years. So it's, it's, a, it's a maintenance and a, and a facility issue or the fact that they're solid state. And so if they're in a ceiling fan, for example, I was dealing with incandescence and compact fluorescence with moving parts that would just get damaged by that vibration. So it's great to have an LED just simply so that they don't get damaged by those moving parts. Mm -hmm. So LEDs, a dimming, of course, as you mentioned earlier, Matthew, dimming is a part of control, lighting controls, which is a big part of energy efficiency that if we only need half the light, if we have the ability to dim it 50%, we, with LEDs, we're only using 50% of our power or maybe even less. With other lighting lighting sources, we may dim at fifty percent, but we're still using seventy five percent of the power. So, um, like you like you said, it's a a complex environment of all these factors at play. Sorry, I didn't ask you a question there. No, I just more of a lead in. No, it's all good. You were saying a lot of um, advantageous things about LED, I, and I'm not the. I try not to be the pessimist. It's just that many things you said, I'm, I've been on projects where those things that sound so nice don't. The end result is they don't. They they don't work out. Like say dimming, L, like for example, just dimming LEDs. You can have flicker. You can have um, when you dim an LED, it doesn't change color the way incandescent changes color. It gets warmer. It stays the the color spectrum stays the same so now you've got a low level cool light which may look like you know um strange like being in an igloo like light coming in you know you're going for this romantic low level light and it's like light cool light you know that doesn't quite fit or the flicker could cause problems with um you know there was some leds flickering to cause seizures you know that was a problem. That it's the and it's the compatibility of the solid state device and the driver and how it's dimmed and the uh, the way that electricity uh, the way that wave of electricity is being um, brought to the LED. It's different. The circuitry is different. So there's some compatibility. So all that stuff mm -hmm. has when you actually are on projects, a lot of thought goes into pulling that together. If it doesn't, you're just taking a shot. You know you're praying it goes right but um yes if it all works out if it's all pre-thought and you have a chance to test it you can get to all these benefits yeah so i think um 
Yeah, that's a great point that the potential of LEDs is tremendous. And do you think that we're on the way to that potential that one day our interior environments will be largely dominated by LED fixtures? Um, OLEDs, which OLED, is the next OLEDs. generation. Yeah. So LEDs are based on rare earth phosphors in them. They're, they're, um, right, they're diodes doped with rare earth phosphors that we get from different countries. But um, OLEDs are organic LEDs, carbon-based. Now, the difference with them is they're, they can be on films like flexible, flexible films. They can be much thinner. So we already have OLEDs in curved screens, curved um, TV screens, and in our smartphones. But they're still uh, cost prohibitive. They haven't gone through the um, generations that LED has been going through the last decade, but they're starting to. So if you were to buy an OLED fixture, it's expensive. Like a square, if you want to get a square foot of it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an expensive way to light something. But you may want to do it. It's if you were building a space station, you know, if you does money... You know, if you need that light in a thin area, that's what you would use. But it's coming. It's coming. The way that LEDs dropped in price, it would happen with OLEDs. And yes, we're going to move into the point where this room will grow. We could glow. Um, surfaces will glow the way we want them. We could basically be inside a TV. You know, you can make the room a TV. You could get to those high luminances in, in small areas. You could pixelate. A building inside if you want you can make it look like oh there's a picture of a fixture actually giving me light where it's it's an OLED right there's a great you know you, so so um is that the holodeck you're describing well I think it's the point of just the fixed the OLEDs this thin film it itself could be the fixture the film itself there's so many if you look at patents about what's what's being patented now you probably get an idea of what's coming because uh, the patents usually come before the actual mm -hmm. device because the technology is right there. So people who are anticipating, you know. The building science that's in here is implicit in building science 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. 1.0 being the interaction of building in the, in the environment, right? So to, like we've talked on the podcast before about the building is, needs to be recognized as a physical structure immersed in this massive stream of the atmosphere, like trillions of tons of mass moving by the building. And there's temperatures and humidities and gas phase pollutants and particles. We need to be mindful of all that. Building Science 2.0 is bringing the people into this, which is, you know, and I think about it from thermal comfort. You guys are talking about it from lighting quality perspective. But what's really striking, and you brought this up when you thought about, when you brought up sustainable design, Keith, this Building Science 3.0 is how do we all work together? How do the three of us as consultants, because right now in this room, right, so I'm a mechanical consultant, you're an enclosure consultant, Keith, and Matthew, you're a lighting consultant, and I guess you're also a lighting consultant. So the point is getting involved early and getting, um, j just from the mechanical perspective, right, um, I'm trying and have some limited success, but I tell my architect partners, that look, when you're doing massing on a building, you're defining beauty from your perspective, from your architectural perspective. I very much would like to be doing massing from the mechanical perspective of beauty, being thermal comfort and indoor air quality at that same time. So if you go too far and you didn't let me get my two cents in, by the time you show me your thing, here's my beautiful building, I'm like, oh yeah, what am I gonna do with that? You know, giant, tall, overhangless 25 foot wall of glass and the, I'm going to have a client, you know, in their bathrobe first thing in the morning. Anyway, so aperture for you guys, you know, there's massing orientation and aperture, very basic functions of a building to define those as the design. Don't you want to be in as early as possible defining aperture mm -hmm. and shading structure? Right. And it's working. You're getting success. And, um, and you do end up with something beautiful because it's, it's a um, ordering function that ends with beauty. Mm -hmm. When you design around function, you usually end up with a beautiful form. That's something, exactly right. You know, and, and, and it relates to nature. And then because there's, I mean, it's not that we have to be open to beauty, right? That mm -hmm. we don't have to be stuck on particular forms. There's lots of beautiful forms. And yeah. so if you're designing around visual and thermal comfort and you're looking at the sun, which is the main source of energy, you're gonna end up with something beautiful.
Yeah. So let me just add to that that um, a, a big part of our class is trying to teach students to um, link beauty and performance. Uh, we do shading and massing exercises with them. And that really the most beautiful is there's you can't separate the performance from the beauty. Yeah. That if it's beautiful without the performance, then it's superficial beauty and it doesn't last. And it, it doesn't, it becomes trendy, it becomes out of place. Right. And um, the occupants don't like it. And I believe that designer architect down the line doesn't like it once they sort of internalize how it's not performing. So um, I, I believe that's sort of like the, um, the key to timeless, great timeless design is linking those two things, performance and beauty. I'll just, I'm working on some projects now and um so we're establishing prescriptive ways to do things where you follow prescription and then when there's triggers that appear that say oh prescriptive doesn't work you pursue performance paths which are simulation and uh those simulations are meant to answer particular questions and then and the trick is like running simulations that look at all these different metrics at once because there isn't the software that you're talking lighting simulations and lighting no thermal too okay no because there's whole whole building energy analysis is part of it because that that the underlying um energy is is one of the big questions too but um so early on get involved early on follow prescriptive methods as as much as you can just to get um not to spend money unnecessarily on performance too early try to see when triggers happen that you uh come in with performance triggers meaning what triggers that uh you you come across a situation where a prescriptive path doesn't doesn't address the full question and you know that because um it's not it's not presented in the simple form that a prescriptive approach would solve there's more complexity to it so so and it's something you can't really answer without seeing in more depth with which may involve 3d you know space time and some like looking at something more dynamically you know in in a methodical way so it's a performance-based approach it's a higher level simulation maybe a a 3d model of the building a, a weather file of the year right by hour right. and uh then you're looking at particular things and maybe you have an a, maybe you have an automated system shades that go up and down and now and then you have add in occupant response you have an algorithm for how the occupant may drive those shades if it's not automated i mean now you're now you're really running a simulation right yeah. and there's a lot to interpret so that's where so you don't want to do that in the beginning you want to do that if you have you know later if you have to but uh, you're trying to approach things simply, right? Simple is better. Simple systems, less complexity. If that works, that's the best way to go about it. So, so that's that's part of the, mm-hmm. the answer to this. How do we work together? That yeah, you know. So, okay. aspiring toward multiple levels of beauty with our project teams is absolutely, I believe, um, becoming more and more mainstream. And one of the challenges, and this is not really building science, but um, architects are immersed in our society and generally all of us all of us in this room i know we're experiencing bandwidth constraints with our lives and so i know that i have um, certainly had a big sense talking to an architect sometimes like oh they really want to do right but they're so busy that they don't have time to try to relocate that diffuser for me um i don't know how i don't know if there's a solution to that it's, it's not a science. It's I think it comes down to priorities, really. And um, when things are low down, da- anything, whatever it is, when things are low down on the priority list, they just don't get done. Yeah. And um, so that's something that that's true. I am hoping in um, architecture schools across North America that performance can rise up on the priority list. Because I think for gen- like a good solid generation or more, um, superficial beauty has trumped performance and that's a long topic of discussion but um i do think it comes down to prioritizing things i'm the person that throws in the wrench you know that will come up with something i'm trying to hold myself back more in the interest of doing good you know the best business approach too but when i see things like design wise i typically save them so i i can make you know get pretty down and design a path and then see something and i won't hold it back i'll say it and sometimes it gets implemented on a project, you know, but that, 
that's the thing. You want to be open. You never want to be closed. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the experience of working on something just reveals something. You know, yeah. Even things you thought, oh, I, I really know this. I know the system. But suddenly you realize, oh, I've been trying to do this uh, particular thing. And now I, I finally figured out uh, what the actual intent was. Let me just frame it that way. You know, so, so how to, I don't want to give you an example because it will keep it open. But stay open through the process. So, so that didn't answer to your question. There's always more to say. Thank you guys very much for listening out there. Uh, chances are we'll be looking more into lighting in the future. Thanks for having us. Thank you.